Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You may turn to Proverbs chapter 13. That's where we were a couple of weeks ago. Unfortunately, due to a user error, me being the user, there was no recording of Miles McKee last week. But then a couple days, probably Friday, I guess, I got the first email asking me, is everything okay? There's no new message up on the website. Are you, are you all all right? And I had to write back and say, we're fine. There was just no recording because somebody forgot to push the record button. What I did like about Miles' message last week is that he reminded me how important it is to think about how good God is to us. And, you know, I am a doctrine wonk. I like the theological, intellectual exercise of understanding doctrine and nuance in the Bible. That's me. There's a phrase that preachers use often. They say, if the message of the Bible just gets to your head but doesn't travel that 18 inches down to your heart, then you're not really understanding the Bible yet because there is an awful lot said in the Bible about your emotional response to the things that God has done for you. And in fact, worship and praise of God is in many ways based in your emotional response as well as your intellectual response to him. So I appreciated that last week Miles said, everybody just close your eyes for a moment and just think about how good our good shepherd is. You know, he's been awfully, awfully good to us. And I know I say that a lot. I'll say, well, you know, God's been good to us. We've made it through another year. He's taken care of us. We've, we've had trials. We've had ups and downs, but we've survived them by God's good grace. But sometimes we need to just not know that, not just think that, but sometimes we have to feel that and experience that. And I appreciate that he helped us do that last week. Didn't you all appreciate that? Yes. In the midst of what was a, a very nice message about the Lord being our shepherd, so we have no other wants, it was good to just think about, muse about, concentrate on the fact that the Lord is a good shepherd and that he's good all the time. Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah. Proverbs chapter 13, starting at verse 1, is going to talk about parental discipline. It says, a wise son accepts his father's discipline. And then to put a little balance on that, if you look down at verse 24 of chapter 13, it says, he who spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. My dad loved me. 
Your dad loved you, huh? Yeah, yeah. So he who spares the rod hates his son, but verse 1 says a wise son accepts his father's discipline. Let's talk about discipline for just a few moments because psychologists, child psychologists, which are very small, very short psychologists, that's what that is. Child psychologists talk about the necessity of discipline and boundaries in raising a child. And the boundaries that you put on a child really do two things. From the kid's perspective, the boundaries are just a list of what they can't do. Just don't go there, don't do that, don't reach for this, just don't, don't, don't. But the boundaries are also a positive because a child who wants to please his parents and children do desire the love and attention of their parents and sometimes the way they get that attention is by being a good boy or a good girl and the only way they know how to be pleasing to their parents is to stay within the boundaries so they know if I don't do that if I don't go there if I then I'm being good and so there is a very positive aspect to boundaries and to discipline And the Bible says that. The Bible says that there is a very positive side to parental discipline. But then ultimately, this is also a spiritual truth. Because you go to the book of Hebrews, and the writer of the book of Hebrews says, whom the Lord receives, whom God receives, every child that God receives, he disciplines. So that's all part of the parent-child relationship. It's difficult for some of us, because we love our children, it's difficult for us to discipline them. But real, genuine love is to discipline them and to, I used to use the phrase, to risk being the bad guy. And I would tell my children, I'm going to risk being the bad guy for your good. You're going to hate me for a little while because I'm going to discipline you, and you're going to stomp and fume, and you're going to hate me for a little while, but in the end... Even the writer of Hebrews says that when God disciplines people, it brings about the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And that's what consistent, proper parental discipline accomplishes. So there's a very practical side to what Solomon is saying here. A wise son recognizes that his father's discipline is there for his own good. That his father loves him, and that's why he is disciplining him. I disciplined my children for a couple of reasons. Number one, to make my house a better place for me to live. (laughs) But I also disciplined my children to keep them out of jail. Because I have met children through the years who did not get proper discipline. And to the person, they're brats. They're awful to be around. And you think, don't your parents love you? Haven't your parents ever told you that that's completely inappropriate? Haven't your parents ever told you how off-putting that is? Well, then how come your parents don't love you enough to train you up in the way that you should go? But then the real reason that I was disciplining my children was to teach them how to accept discipline. Because ultimately, God 
is going to discipline you if he loves you. If he is your father and you are his child, he is going to discipline you. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, if you've never been disciplined by God, you're not his. And so the training that happens in this life takes the form of discipline. God corrects us. God puts us through trials. God does all that in order to build up our faith and our confidence, but also to build our dependency on him. And not only so that we know what not to do, because those are the bad things. We'll get in trouble if we do these bad things. But also, like I said earlier, so that we do know what to do so that we can ultimately please our father. So discipline and boundaries are very important in the development of the human character. And that's why parents are supposed to do it. And that's why God does it. Actually, I was wondering um, what discipline from God might look like. Discipline from God comes a lot of different ways. It can be everything from God says that when you don't do things his way, that you can work hard and put your money in bags, but he'll make sure your bags have holes in it. So you'll run out of money. Discipline from God looks like, in Israel's case, when he brought their enemies down on them. And instead of having peace and comfort, they ended up being overrun by wild animals, by their enemies, or drought. You know, God can bring drought on people in order to correct them nationally. So there's a lot of different ways in the Bible that you see God disciplining people by the things he takes you through. If God is absolutely sovereign and in control of whatever it is you're going through, if you're going through a difficult time, he ordained that too. And that's for your instruction or your correction or your training in righteousness. He's doing that discipline that a good father does. Does that make sense? A wise son, then, we're not just talking then about physical sons with physical fathers. I think we can extend this out to our relationship with God. When God does discipline us or when our earthly fathers discipline us, the writer of Hebrews says, at the time you're going through the discipline, it's never pleasant. But it does yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So you have to recognize, even as you're going through it, that you're being disciplined for your own good and appreciate that. My dad has been gone for a good number of years now, but I'll tell anybody, anytime, anywhere, that the reason I think I've been a reasonably good dad, say nothing. Oh, you're agreeing. Okay, very good. The reason that I think I've been a reasonably good dad is because I was raised by a really good dad. But my really good dad was a disciplinarian. And there was nothing more enjoyable at the end of the day than to get a smile from dad. To get that sense of approval from dad. You been a good boy today? Yeah, dad. I stayed inside the boundaries. I did all the good stuff. And it would please dad. So if I didn't have those boundaries, if I didn't have that discipline, I wouldn't know how to please my father, who I loved and wanted to make happy. So I appreciate the discipline that I was raised with, and I appreciate the way that God has also disciplined me in my life, because that has led me to the faith that I have today that I wouldn't have had he left it up to me. 
a wise son accepts his father's discipline. But a scoffer will not listen, the NASB says, to rebuke. It's the word for correction. A scoffer, somebody who's never agreeable, somebody who's always arguing, someone who's cynical, someone who thinks he always knows better, the guy who says, I know everything, you can't tell me anything. That kind of person is not going to listen. When a good correction comes along, when a rebuke comes along, when a discipline comes along, they're not going to pay any attention to it. So that's in contrast with a wise son. A wise son and a scoffer are in contrast. The wise person is the one who accepts discipline when it comes from someone who loves them. Here, let's test that theory for a moment, shall we? Yeah. Sandy, you ever discipline your kids? Yes, you said that with great enthusiasm. Yes. Why did you discipline your kids? Oh, hang on, I should check with the kids. Kids, does he ever discipline you? Yeah, yeah. Does he discipline you because he hates you? No, he disciplines you because he loves you. Do you discipline them because you love them or hate them? Yeah, exactly right. So proper discipline, parental discipline, good guidance, all comes from a loving place. If your father didn't love you, he wouldn't care what you did. And you'd be one of those kids who I'd be saying, don't your parents love you? So a wise son accepts his father's discipline. Forgive me, but what's the age to stop discipline? Kids. 35. 35, yeah. I don't know. I, you know, my kids, I still discipline them when it's appropriate. And what I mean by discipline them is say, okay, the correct way to go about this is this way. I don't treat them the way I did when they were younger. But since I mentioned it, take a look at verse 24 again. He who spares the rod hates his son. I don't think that means just beating your child. You know, there's the big spanking debate in the world these days. But sparing the rod, I think, is synonymous with not disciplining them. The person who does not discipline his child does not love them. He who loves the child disciplines him. And so I don't think there's an age limit. I know that my father... When I moved out here from California, we lived in his house for a couple of months while we got our house. And as soon as I was under my dad's roof again, we played by his rules. Because I'm still his son, he's still my father, and in that way, I still instruct my children. But only because I've been alive longer and just kind of know more stuff. And when I can see them doing things that are going to get them into trouble or that I think is a mistake, I'm going to correct them. But that's only because I love them. Make sense? Yeah. Okay, good. My better half told me that. So. Did she? Yes. Yeah, so I just wasted all that? <laughs> and I think we all, by the way, as a group, we all just agreed with you that that is your better half. So... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so verse 2. The night is waning, and we've only gotten to verse 2 here. 
From the fruit of a man's mouth, he enjoys good. Which is an interesting sort of poetic thing that Solomon is saying here. Because he's saying that a man enjoys good, takes in good things, eats good things, has good nourishment, takes in good from the good things that come out of his mouth. So the fruit of his mouth, how he speaks, how he speaks to people, how he conducts himself in the way that he communicates, results in good returning back to him. In a verse or two, he's going to say that one who runs around with his lips open all the time comes to ruin. And so this contrast of your mouth and your speech is something that Solomon keeps returning to time and time and time again. And so this was something that he was quite serious about. You got to watch your mouth. You got to watch what you say. And here in verse two, I think it's more than just what you say. It's how you say it. It's the good fruit of your lips. Are you bringing good news to people? Are you bringing positive things to people? Are you bringing appropriately corrective things to people? Are you producing good fruit with the way you're using your mouth? And if you are, then good things come back to you. But the desire of the treacherous is violence. He's going to mention the treacherous and already has a couple times in this book. The treacherous are those people who are just living to hurt other people. The people who are looking to take advantage of other people. People who are looking to enrich themselves off the back of other people. People who get joy out of the pain of other people. Those are the treacherous people. And treacherous people obviously don't have good words. They obviously don't use their mouth to encourage other people or compliment other people, lift up other people. They use their mouth in a way that brings about violence because that is their chief aim. So then verse 3, the one who guards his mouth, the one who's careful with his mouth, careful with his words, careful to make sure that his words are valuable and productive, the one who guards his mouth preserves his own life. It's one of those poetic contrasts that Solomon loves to create where when you're guarding your mouth so that you're being careful about how you're speaking to others, how you're producing good fruit with your lips, the end benefit, even though it benefits the other person, the end benefit is to you. You preserve your own life by the way that you produce good fruit with your lips. Which, by the way, makes sense, because if you're using your mouth in treacherous ways, if you're hurting other people with your mouth all the time, they're going to look to hurt you. And so it is good for you to just be careful with how you speak. But the one who opens wide his lips, which means the one who's always talking, his mouth is open all the time. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. That's in contrast to preserving his life. There's one type of person that preserves his life. That's the person who guards his mouth. But the one who's constantly talking ultimately comes to ruin. And there are many, many ways that we could all think of 
where you're going to come to ruin if you say too much stuff. If you're constantly talking and you're speaking in a way that is villainous, that is trying to hurt other people, where you're trying to bring treachery to other people, well, then you're going to be a liar as well. And to be a good liar, you got to have a good memory. And eventually your lies are going to catch up with you. And then the people you've been lying to are going to be angry at you. Pardon me? Everybody gets caught eventually, yeah. And that's going to bring your life to ruin. So verse 3 is really saying, you know, it's good for you ultimately, not good for the other people. It's good for you to be careful with what you say. And it's bad for you to have a treacherous mouth, to be talking all the time, to just be spewing words without thinking about what you're saying. Verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. So a couple of contrasts here. The first contrast is between gets nothing and made fat. And the real contrast is between the sluggard and the soul that is diligent. Sluggard is obviously the person who doesn't get up and go to work. The person who's just lazy. The person who won't get out there and do the things that need to be done in order to accomplish good in their life. Well, that's the sluggard, and he craves things. He sits at home and wants stuff, but he doesn't have that stuff. He gets nothing because he's a sluggard, because he didn't go to work for it. He didn't go try to get it. I'm not going to get too political here, hopefully, But my goodness, the millennial generation, as I'm looking at them right now, have this abundance of stuff, stuff that I didn't have. I can remember one Christmas, my dad came to me because my dad was one of those kind of guys who wouldn't buy stuff if we couldn't afford it. Never had a credit card. We never buy anything on credit. What? I mean, you buy a house, you take a mortgage, that's about the extent of it. If you can't afford it, you don't buy it. He came to us kids. There were five of us at the time. He came to us one Christmas and said, I need to tell you up front, everybody's going to get one gift this Christmas because there's just no money. And so everybody gets one thing. So when you get up on Christmas morning, I don't want to hear you whining and complaining about, oh, I didn't get what I wanted. You're lucky if you get anything. That was my dad. And and we were fine. You know, we got up Christmas morning, everybody got one thing. And we really appreciated the one thing that we got because we knew that dad was stretched in order to get us even that one thing. Meanwhile, talking about millennials, the kids these days seem so completely enamored with stuff. They have so much stuff. They're so overwhelmed with stuff. They have such an accumulation of stuff and their parents, for whatever reason, rather than come to them and say, you don't get stuff. If you want stuff, you got to work for your stuff. The parents these days, for some reason, think that love is buying stuff and giving stuff to the kids and giving them more stuff. And the kids end up spoiled with stuff. And when the day comes that they have to go to work for their stuff, they think that's unfair. Why should I have to go to work for stuff? I've always just gotten stuff handed to me. Well, I'm only reciting all that to say what Solomon says here is as current as as today. That the soul of the sluggard, 
the person who won't get up and work, he craves stuff. He wants stuff. He wants more game sets, or he wants more food, or he wants a car, or he wants a bigger house because so-and-so has one. But he doesn't get it. Why? Because he's a sluggard. He won't go do the work required to get the thing. We need to recognize the value of getting up every day and going to work, doing the things necessary to have the stuff. Too much of today's society starts with have the stuff on credit, with your credit card, with do whatever you got to do to extend yourself to get the stuff rather than go to work first. And then after you've done the work, the reward is the stuff you want. You get the difference? The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. That's everything I'm saying. The diligent one, the one who gets up and does the stuff, who does whatever is required to get the stuff, he's going to get all the stuff he wants. He's going to, his soul, his, his desire is going to be fattened up. He's going to get all the things that he went to work for. Verse 5. A righteous man hates falsehood But a wicked man acts disgustingly and shamefully. Okay, so the first thing you have to see is the correlation between falsehood, which a righteous man hates, and the phrase disgustingly and shamefully. Those are all correlative words. If you hate falsehood, you also hate things that are disgusting and things that are shameful. A wicked man acts disgustingly and acts shamefully, but a righteous man would hate that kind of action. He hates any kind of falsehood, any kind of lying, any kind of putting on airs, any kind of pretending to be something that he's really not. All of those are falsehoods, but a wicked man does it all the time. And he doesn't care that it's shameful or that it's disgusting. He's just going to act that way all the time. So what's a mark of righteousness then? A righteous man doesn't act that way. And if a person does act that way, that's what Solomon calls a wicked man. Verse 6. Righteousness guards the way of the one who is blameless, but wickedness subverts the sinner. So the contrast is between something guarding you, something looking out for you, making sure that the way you walk and the things you do, that you are secure versus being subverted, being tripped up, having somebody working against you. And the thing that is working against you is wickedness. If you're a wicked person, that very wickedness will undermine you ultimately. A moment ago, my daughter, Megan just said, eventually you always get found out. And that's what this verse is saying. The wickedness that you live in ultimately subverts you. But if you walk righteously, if you walk in a way that is blameless, that serves to guard you. That serves to protect you. Nobody's going to come against you or come after you if your way is blameless, is what Solomon is getting at. But your wickedness is going to undermine you. It's going to trip you up every time. Verse 7. I think verse 7 and verse 8 go together. They're both talking about riches. They're both talking about wealth. 
But it's also an observation. I said to you last week that some of these proverbs are bits of wisdom, and sometimes it's just observation. This is one of those observation verses. He says, there is one who pretends to be rich, but has nothing. I had a friend out in California who was deeply in debt because of the car he drove. He lived in a ramshackle apartment. He had no furniture to speak of at all, but he had a great haircut and a cool car so that when he went out on the streets, he looked like money. And he used to use the phrase all the time. He would say, all flash, no cash. (laughs) The phrase around here in Middle Tennessee is, all hat, no cattle. It's all a look. It's all a pretense. You're putting on that you're rich, but in fact, you have nothing. Even back in Solomon's day, he said that there were people who pretend to be rich, but they have nothing. And on the other hand, another pretends to be poor, but he has great wealth. He's the one who really has money tucked away, but he's not putting on an air so that you know he's a rich person. He's just walking around humbly, doing his thing in life, but he's actually rich. But then verse 8 stands sort of in contrast to that and says, the ransom of a man's life is his riches. What Solomon is getting at is, if you have money and people know you have money, they're much more likely to fall on you, to try to get a ransom out of you, to try to send, we even use that phrase, a ransom note. A ransom demand. People who know you've got stuff want your stuff. And if they have to hurt you to get to your stuff, they're going to do it. So then does it make any sense for you to walk around pretending to be rich? Because what you're really bringing to yourself is other people who are going to want the wealth you pretend to have. So you're actually hurting yourself, again, in that pretense. But the poor... The NASB says the poor hears no rebuke. Uh, what is the? Has anybody got an ESV? Yeah, uh, but a poor man hears no threat. That's a better translation, I think. In other words, the poor man is not being threatened because he doesn't have anything that anybody wants to take from him. And standing in contrast with the rich man whose riches become his ransom for his life, the poor man isn't going to hear any such threats because he doesn't have anything. So what is the better part of wisdom then in verse 7? Verse 7 says there's one who pretends to be rich and has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, but he has great wealth. That's the person who I think is being smart. If he's pretending to be poor and everybody's buying into the idea that he's poor, he's not going to be under any threat. But the person who's showing off The person who's pretending he's rich is actually hurting himself because people are going to fall on him thinking that his riches are going to be a ransom for him. So again, this pretense, this falsehood, this showing off, this disgusting, shameful behavior ultimately ends in, results in you being hurt, you hurting yourself rather than living in an upright manner, which would protect you. Verse 9, the light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. 
the word light and the word lamp are the same kind of idea. That 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 you show, that that exudes from you. And the light of the righteous, the if you want to say the inner man of the righteous, if you want to say the appearance of the righteous, the appearance, the light of the righteous is happy. It rejoices. It's walking after the rule and the law of God. Therefore, it's secure. Therefore, nobody's out to try to hurt you. Therefore, you can rejoice in walking in righteousness. There is a very valuable benefit to walking in righteousness beyond just leaving this life and getting heaven forever. But walking in righteousness here and now results in you gaining friends, gaining security, being able to walk honestly before all men, and rejoicing, being able to be happy. A truly, genuinely happy life is a man who can walk in a truly unencumbered conscience. And you can't walk in a truly unencumbered conscience if you know all the people you've hurt, all the people you've damaged, all the people that you've been uh, lying to, that you've been benefiting off of. It's impossible to rejoice when you're walking that way. But a righteous person, the light of a righteous person rejoices. But the lamp of the wicked, that light of the wicked just burns out. They don't exude light. They don't exude benefit to anybody. Through presumption, says verse 10, through presumption comes nothing but strife. Do you know what presumption is? David writes in the Psalms, asking God to forgive him for his presumptuous sins. Do you know what presumption is? <laughs> well, yes, of course you would. We were forced to memorize what presumption is. So go ahead. What is presumption? To take upon oneself without leave or warrant to make an encroachment upon. That's exactly correct. That is the dictionary <laughs> definition of what it is to be presumptive. Do you understand what Tom just said? To take upon yourself without permission, without leave or warrant. To just assume that you can do it. I, I can just do this. I can just get away with this. I can just take this if I want. I can just, that's what presumption is. Spiritually speaking, presumptive sin is when you say, well, I know I probably shouldn't do this. But gee, it's all under the blood, and well, Jesus died, and well, I'm forgiven. So I can probably get away with this sin, and God will probably forgive me for this sin. So I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. That's what presumptive sin is. So through that kind of presumption, just rather than doing what is right, because what is right has already been defined for you, because the discipline of God and the instruction and the law of God has already told you what it looks like to do righteousness, to presume that you don't have to be that way, that you can be wicked, that you can take advantage of other people, that you can presume on other people, from that comes nothing but strife, which is the opposite of what I just talked about, a calm conscience. A calm sense of well-being, rejoicing. If you're presumptive, if you take on yourself or take from other people or do things that, that you know you shouldn't ought to, but you just figure you can get away with it, if you go through life like that, that brings nothing but strife. But with those who receive counsel, 
It's the same as like receiving discipline, being thankful for the times in your life where God has brought people into your life who know more than you do, who have been able to guide you and instruct you, who have been able to give you good and wise counsel. Those who are willing to receive that are demonstrating wisdom. And that's the opposite of the scoffer. That's the opposite of the presumptive one. That's the opposite of the person who walks through life thinking, I don't need anybody to tell me nothing. I know everything. Don't tell me who you think you're talking to. People who walk through life like that, they're going to receive nothing but strife. But those who receive counsel, who recognize the value of good counsel and wisdom, Well, those are the wise people. Those are the people who have begun with the fear of God and recognize that the good counsel that comes into their life is ultimately a gift from God. Verse 11 says, we're going to try to get to verse 13 tonight, so just hang in there with me because I want to end on verse 13, and then next week I want to start on verse 13, which has got everybody curious now, and you're looking at verse 13. No reading ahead. (laughs) Wealth obtained by fraud, says verse 11. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles. It goes away. Wealth that you got by taking advantage of other people, presuming on other people doing all of your wickedness and chicanery to other people in order to benefit yourself, to make yourself wealthy, ultimately that goes away. But the one who gathers because he worked for it, the one who gathers wealth by labor, the one who goes to work every day, makes his paycheck, saves that up, that's the one who increases it. So there is value, he keeps saying, he keeps going back to it, there is value to diligence. There is value to be willing to get up every day and do what's in front of you, do the work that is necessary, and then whatever wealth you gain from that, that is the wealth that you're able to increase and you're able to keep. Yes, sir? You don't appreciate money until you've earned it. Oh, that's a fact. You don't appreciate anything until you've earned it. The phrase that I like is, uh, people don't appreciate what they get if they don't have skin in the game, if they didn't work for it, if they didn't invest something for it, they don't care about it. Wealth obtained by fraud, it goes away. It dwindles away. But the one who gathers by his work, by his labor, by his diligence, by getting up and doing the work, well, he's going to increase his wealth. Hope deferred, says verse 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. That word means probably anticipation, the thing that you're looking forward to, that you're expecting is going to happen, and then it's deferred, it's postponed, it's put off for one reason or another. There are several commentators that have likened this verse to our hope for heaven, that our longing to go home, our desire to be with God, that the longer that takes, the more we're saddened by the fact that we're still here, that we're still on the planet, that we're still waiting. Mm -hmm. Feast of Trumpets is just around the corner right now. It comes up a couple days after my birthday this month. And anybody who knows me well knows 
that after Feast of Trumpets each year comes and goes, I go through a, a bit of a depression. Because every year I hope, maybe this year, maybe Jesus is coming back. Now, I'm not saying I definitely know he's coming back on Feast of Trumpet. I just see some internal evidence in the Bible that leads me to think when he comes back, it's probably going to be the satisfaction, the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets, just like he fulfilled the Spring Feast. And so every Feast of Trumpets, when it comes around, I think maybe this year, maybe he's coming, maybe. And then it passes by and we get into October and I'm like, oh, no, I'm depressed and Nobody's getting anything for Halloween now, and I'm just I'm all upset. Because hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred if you're anticipating, if you're waiting on something, but it just keeps getting put off. It never comes to fruition. He says that makes the heart sick, but if there's something you're longing for, something that you truly desire in a good way, and it finally comes into being, that, he says, is like a tree of life. That revives you. That, that brings you up again and makes you feel positive about life. It's, I was waiting for that. I was longing for that. I wanted that. And I, and I got that. That happened. That came to reality. That's so satisfying. It makes you so happy. So the contrast is hoping for something and not getting it Makes you feel sick, makes the heart sick, makes you sad, makes you depressed. But a desire that's fulfilled is like a tree of life. And now verse 13, and we'll close on this. I just find it interesting right here in the middle of chapter 13, in the middle of all these different Proverbs, that this very theological statement comes down. The one who despises the word will be in debt to it. But the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. He's obviously talking about the word of God. He's obviously talking about the commandments of God. And the one who despises the word of God is ultimately, even though he thinks that by despising it or rejecting it or thinking it's nothing, it's just the word of God, it's something that somebody wrote 2,000 years ago, it has no bearing on my life today. People who despise the word of God, says Solomon, ultimately they, though they don't know it, are going to be in debt to it. Why? Because it's going to extract its price. It is... It's going to destroy them. It's going to hold them guilty. It's going to sit in judgment on them. Here, I'll put it this way. How many of you, as you were walking in tonight, took a look at Micah's car out in the parking lot? (laughs) Micah did. He raised his hand. Did the rest of you look at Micah's car? No. No. How do you know it's there? Micah's here. So, he could be lying. We don't know. We didn't see it. How do we know Micah's car is there? What if we all collectively, Micah, what if we all as a group got together and agreed on two things tonight? Number one, we all agree that that's Sandy's better half. We've already established that. Okay, we've agreed on that. What if we were all to agree that you don't have a car in the parking lot? Would that change that you have a car in the parking lot? No, it wouldn't change it. If we all agreed, no, we didn't see it. We don't know what's out there. We have no comprehension of your car in the parking lot. And the fact that you're here, we don't know. You could have ridden in on a camel. We don't know. We don't know how you got here. But you know how you got here. 
You know that your car exists and it's in the parking lot. So no matter how much we argue with you about your car in the parking lot, you know it exists, right? So our lack of believing in it changes nothing. You get my point? People who are walking around on the planet right now saying the word of God means nothing doesn't change it. It's still the word of God. And it's still standing fast as the word of God. It's still the sure and secure word of God. Therefore, that word of God is ultimately going to judge them and they are ultimately in debt to it even though they don't think it even exists. But we just agreed that Micah's car doesn't exist. But it exists. You get what I'm saying? If something as simple as Micah's car works as an object lesson, how much more the word of God, the very word of God on which the planets were formed, the very word of God that is keeping you alive and breathing and knowing your own name at this moment, the very word of God that can tell you what the future is, the very word of God that can tell you that the son of God came to the planet, that is so sure and certain and definite that just because you walk around saying, I won't have it, that proves nothing. You accomplish nothing by saying you don't believe it. So Solomon says, the one who despises, hates, doesn't want, ignores, puts off the word, will be in debt to the word. So what would the wiser move be then? If you know that it's the very word of God. The very word of God, you ought to then fear it. You ought to be reverent before it. You ought to recognize it for what it is. But the one who fears the commandment is going to be rewarded. So the contrast is between it destroying you because you're in debt to it or being rewarded by it. Well, obviously, given that option, I pick B. I want the rewards. I don't want to end up in debt to the word of God. I want to end up Hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Where did I get that phrase? Out of the word of God. I would rather worship and praise God all the days of my life. Why? Because that's what it says in the word of God. I would rather walk after the discipline of God, the way that God has set up the boundaries in my life. I would rather walk inside those boundaries, not only to please the God who loves me, but out of respect and fear and reverence for the very word of God. Does that make sense? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know that word reward is actually shalom. It's shalom, peace. The one who despises the word will be in debt to it, but the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. We'll pick up there next week with the teaching of the wise. Any questions about that? Okay, no questions? We're all good? All right, say goodbye to the internet folks. Goodbye! Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.